Well, I think we need to start out by apologizing for not having a show last week, but with Mark leaving, it was uh, gotcha. It was just difficult to come up with how we were going to do this, but I think we, we've got it kind of figured out, and uh, for this next show, we were able to get a returning guest to come on, because you've been doing some pretty cool things. Today, we have Jason Loftus on, and he is actually sitting in, what is it, Gardner, Montana right now, right? Yep, that's right. I think Jason is our first three timer. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. But he's you a good are, guest. You're getting you're getting desperate. No, I'm well, just kidding. <laughs> here's the deal. It's it's uh, for me February and March are always like down times. It's not like it's a busy season for wildlife photography in the Colorado metro area. You know, you, there's stuff to be had for sure, but it's not like it's, it's not like the fall. It's not like where there's just something going on, or even the summer or spring where there's just something going on. But there's always something going on where you're at, Jason. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is actually one of my favorite times of the year for, for coming up here. So, so give us a just give us an idea of what you're doing and where you're at and what's the plan. And you got you were there last week. You're there yep. this week. And then you're going up to Montana after this. But what what do you guys are you by yourself? Are you with a group? Are you what just give us kind of the rundown. And I know last week you were on a snow coach, so give us a little snapshot into that. Okay. Yeah. So last weekend, um, I came I was invited to participate with some photographers on a snow coach. And it's the first private snow coach that I was able to do. And that's a little bit different ball game for sure. Um, you're able to have the coach to yourself. And if it's just a group of photographers, then you get the benefit of going where you want to go and stopping as long as you'd like and things of that nature. So that was a huge benefit. That's the first time I'd done it. Worked out really, really well. We had two really good days. I think some of it was timing. I hit it just right with some storms that had just come through. And if everybody understands, this was the last weekend of the month. So, or the, the sorry, second to the last weekend of the month of February, and it was super cold. I mean, minus 15 every morning when we got up, and uh, that made for some really fun and exciting shooting opportunities with the bison and Madison and some of those things. You know, you get those nice breathy shots and some of that backlit golden glow type stuff, and um, had some pretty good experiences there. So, so that was really fun. Um, actually, we spent some time in Hayden Valley. Um, came back around, spent some time down by uh, an Old Faithful area, and then spent some time in Madison, obviously looking for opportunities through there. Uh, we saw everything from coyotes, um, bison, saw some uh, uh, elk, obviously. I'm just trying to think. There was a couple other things. The big thing for me, though, was, and we didn't see any um, – uh, we were really looking for bobcats. Didn't see any bobcats. And didn't see any foxes. That was the one that kind of surprised me. Usually there's quite a few fox opportunities in that area. And they had been seeing them, but we just, you know, timing. It's always a timing thing. And we just were not in the right place at the right time. But still had some really good shoots. Had an eagle catch a fish right off the river in Hayden Valley, right by the road. And then we ended the trip, so to speak, with a, a pine marten opportunity, which that was my first time shooting a pine marten. So I was pretty excited about that. And, and they are just good... really cute little boogers, right? Oh, it's crazy how cute they are. I mean, that's, yeah, I was blown away. I mean, they look like a, like a, kind of like a large um, ermine, if you will, or not ermine, a weasel. 
because um, of the coloration. But yeah, they're just insane. They're super cute. They're very, they got a lot of uh, character to them, you know what I mean? They're even like their facial expressions and that they, and they're very playful in that. So he put on quite the show for us. And that was a great way to kind of top off the trip, a first time bucket list type, you know, shoot. So, but Excellent. yeah, so that was the, that was the shoot that I had with the coach. And um, that was pretty, pretty exciting. I think I'll be doing that again in the future for sure. Let's, uh, let's dive into that a little bit, because if you take a tour, mm-hmm. you're kind of at the mercy of the tour leader. You're at the mercy of the driver because they've got an agenda, places that they want to get you, you know, shots that they want to get you to. Mm-hmm. But if you ran it privately, basically, as long as you're all like-minded, you can kind of just go with the flow wherever you'd like, yeah. as long as you're out, you know, by a certain time, because they, they have a time limit, right? If you le- rent those for all day. Yes, they do. So the how many did ones, you go with? So there was eight of us. I'll talk a little bit about that too. Cause that kind of maybe get even the end of the cost and that a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, if you do a, a not or non private one, if you just book a coach, I can't remember the price. I think it's around 150 a day or something like that. So you save a little bit of money doing it that way, obviously. But they're going to put, you know, they're going to fill the bus, so to speak. And then the the coach we went on seated 14 people, but there was only eight of us that went. So that left us plenty of room for our gear, plenty of room to have, you know, enough room to just kind of spread out and be comfortable. Everybody had a window so you could see what was going on out your side and kind of help spot critters and things of that nature. Um, the other benefit I think you get is the coaches, if they're not private, they leave at eight o'clock to go into the park and they have to be out by four. Um, if you do the private coach, you leave at seven o'clock and you're actually out of the park by like five. So you get an extra couple hours on, on the overall shoot. And that obviously helps because when you're driving between Madison and Hayden, for example, there's, you know, there's an hour of dead time really where there's really not a lot of opportunities to shoot in that. So kind of helps absorb some of that. Um, and then, uh, you know, cost wise, I think it ended up being with eight of us, it was around $240 a day. So, you know, a little, it's not cheap, but it's not terrible. You know what I mean? So we just did two days. We did it on a weekend. Um, I'm, I got, you know, I have a full-time job as we've talked before and I have to try to make the most of the opportunities I have. And so for weekends for me, it's, you know, I'll drive the four hours for a weekend shoot, no problem. Um, and that really worked out well for me. So no time off from work, um, hit the weekend. And then it's always a timing thing. I mean, just even, I mean, there was other coaches that were that going that week that hadn't had a lot of luck at all. And that very easily could have been our coach, right? I mean, it's all about, you know, timing and hitting it right when critters are active. So, Did you have a target species that you were going for? I mean, did you, were you like, oh, I want to, we just want to find this. Or did, was it, oh, this is cool. It's the first time. I, I don't care what we see. It's just going to be fun to do. Yeah. Well, so I'll even touch on that a little bit because I'm a big fan of the coach. I've done it on snowmobiles before. And that was fun you know you're driving the snowmobiles but you're not nearly as comfortable and it's a lot harder to get your gear around especially you know if you have you know a lot of your uh, lens camera equipment with you um so that was nice to be able to be in the coach get out of the elements warm up so to speak whatever you you know you can eat your lunch while you're cruising around on the coach there's a lot of benefits to it that way from a comfort standpoint um the snowmobiles is a little bit more difficult challenge 
Um, what was the question again, Mike? Sorry. Well, did you have a one specific species that you oh. were going for, or did you were were you just like uh, whatever we see is awesome? Yeah, yeah. So I was kind of you know I'm I'm a whatever you know give it to me I'll shoot it kind of a thing. I was really looking for frosty bison. I think I really like the frosty bison, and when you've got a cold enough temperatures where those um, the thermals are creating steam off of the river and stuff, there's a lot more of that when it gets colder and. So even on the Madison, it was pretty steamy. And um, that just, you know, the bison standing by there, they just get frosty. They just can't help it, right? So that was really cool to have that. And obviously, you're always looking for bobcats. The Madison's kind of famous for having bobcat sightings. They've had a few this year, but nothing like they've had in years past. And, you know, we didn't see any of that. And obviously, wolves. Uh, a friend of ours was there like three days before we were, and they had an incredible encounter. And I think it was with the Wapiti Pack, and they just had like a 45-minute with all – I think there's 18 members of the pack, and they were like 45, 50 yards right off of the, the main road grooming each other and interacting. And, you know, of course, that doesn't happen to me because <laughs> – <laughs> but, you know, I was really super happy for her. It was really cool, and she's the kind of – she's the kind of gal that's so passionate about this stuff that, you know, she literally was – when she told me she was crying, I believe it, you know, she had tears in her eyes. And so, yeah, but so, yeah. So the other than that, you know, I'd never even thought of a Pine Martin opportunity, but when that presented itself, that was a big bonus to me. And the group we went with actually the year before it had a Pine Martin. This is just insane. They had a Pine Martin right off the side of the road, hunt and kill a snowshoe hare. Uh, right. You know, and they've got, you know, they got the photos to prove it. Right. So, um, it was really cool for them to be able to have that opportunity and to and to capture it, you know, and it's some really neat images come out of it, obviously. Um, so, you know, that's always in the back of your mind. But, yeah, for me, that was it. And then foxes. Foxes was something I hadn't seen this year at all. And I've, I've spent a few days in the park this year. And usually foxes are kind of a gimme. But this year and here I am again this weekend, I'm, you know, two days in and I still haven't seen a fox. So <laughs> there was a. Uh a pair of fox in down south in Grand Teton National Park that was very photographable. And I still I still have this theory that the park service uses radio colors to discourage photographers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because everywhere you go, the, the main species, there's a lot of radio colors on. So they've radio colored both of these foxes now. <laughs> I cannot imagine what kind of information they're gleaning from this study but these two foxes that draw people all the time are now packing radio collars around so <laughs> it's unfortunate hey so jason i i'm not sure that everybody would know what a snow coach is and i i've done it before but i think they're even different from when i did it back in the day the we did it on the coach i rode on was on tracks and it was tracks, a van. yeah they're not anymore but now i think when i was there this spring i just saw a bunch of these big monster tires things so maybe just give a description of of the truck and kind of you probably got some pictures of it so we could throw them in the show notes but also you get on a bus like in denali national park they're not letting you off the bus inside of wildlife kind of explain what goes on with the snow coach i mean it's probably i i'm assuming you guys were able to get out when the bison are there and you could obviously in a safe manner but describe some yeah. of that yeah um, so there are actually still quite a few options, Ron. I know they actually, we did see one of those vans that has the big tracks on it with the two skis in the front. 
Um, so they still are operating in the, and I don't know if you've seen mm. the bomb bombardiers. Yeah. They're kind of like a, they're kind of like a giant enclosed snowmobile. Um, but they're still running. They, and I think they fit anywhere from like eight to 12 people. Um, they're, they're lower to the ground, a little bit different, um, type of a seating situation. I think you seat facing each other. Um, so a little bit different, you know, a little noisier, got, things like that. They've got individual windows, right? That you can shoot out of. Uh, yes, they do. Yeah. I think, I think those ones do actually. Now I don't know if that you say that, but, um, there's a there's a fame it's been on the internet i'm sure you guys have seen it but there's a video of a bison that's just running full bore and it runs right by this um it was one of those bombardiers that's what they were in because the bison's head is like right even with the windows <laughs> so you they so they seat quite a bit lower so it's a little bit different perspective than sitting in one of those monster monster trucks <laughs> right right but the other ones that they're become real popular are those the the big they're kind of a just a giant bus and they've got monster truck tires on them essentially, um, so they're lifted in that and the big balloon tires and I think the I was asking the driver I think they're like nine psi in each tire so, you know super cushiony and they grab the snow and things like that. Is there snow everywhere you go? Is are there areas where there's no snow or is it all snow right now? So they're down by Old Faithful. There's quite a few areas in those thermal areas where those snows, there's no snow on the ground. Um, it's pretty sparse. I mean, there's still snow in areas, but uh, for the most part, there was snow all through Madison and that. But the snow, that I'm just trying to think of how deep it is. So, you know, right off the road where there might be a little bit more tendency where the plows and that go through um, or where they groom, I think there's a spot we got off and there's about waist deep. Um, but I think the general, in general, the snow is probably just about a little bit above knee deep um, in most of the park that I noticed. Um, but the, that's the good, the good thing about having some deep snow, right, is it really forces the animals towards those roads because they use those roads as well. And so that's why it's such a good opportunity, I think. And when you have less snow in the park, those opportunities dwindle because they're not forced to be close to the road for hunting or for traveling even. So. Right, but but the, but the nice thing is, is to your point, you do are allowed. Like the the guide we had was a guide that the folks that I was invited to go with had used before, and he's a photographer as well. So you can you know kind of call and ask for specific folks and try to book it with the specific guide, and that's that was a benefit because this person is connected. He he's talking to other snow coach drivers and operators to see what they're seeing, and he had kind of has an idea of where to go. And offers up recommendations and that, you know, so we might want to go focus here because they saw wolves over there yesterday or whatever. So, so that helps a ton. And then you are able to get out. It's just all about obeying the rules of the park, which is generally 25 yards from any of the critters. Um, and then staying your distance, you know, wolves and that you're supposed to be a hundred yards or more. And I think technically if you're, if you're like the one they had the encounter that they were pretty close, I think if you're on the road and you're by the, you know, by the coach, that, and they and the wolves approached towards them that they were able to stay put and you know and still have that experience but so yeah pretty pretty awesome opportunity um, a little bit spendy you know if you come up on your own like I'm doing this weekend you can jump up to Gardner and come into Lamar the whole Lamar Valley between Mammoth and Cook City is open they plow that every all year long because the folks in Cook City have to be able to get out and that's their only way to get out of the park and that Cook City area is a pretty popular snowmobiling destination. So, 
Mm-hmm. So you can, that's another opportunity and another option for folks if they want to come up and enjoy the park. And there's still, you know, a lot of opportunities to see all the things that I mentioned, um, including bobcats. Matter of fact, they just, we just heard, we just got wind that the, there was a bobcat right in Mammoth that had walked right in front of the, the, the buildings, the office buildings there. It was spotted last night. So, you know, I mean, I <laughs> don't know if you want to really shoot a bobcat on the lawn in Mammoth, but you know, it's still <laughs> kind of crazy. I saw also uh, two days ago the first bear was spotted in in the park. Well, actually, the uh, first grizzly bear. Yeah. So there's a bear that actually hasn't even didn't hibernate this year. It might be the same one, but there's a grizzly bear, and I think he's in the Lamar area that um, hasn't hasn't even hibernated. Matter of fact, he's stolen a couple of kills from the wolf pack. So, <laughs> oh really? Yeah. <laughs> so, it's um, kind of some winter drama there. But that would be an interesting talk to talk to a researcher that is. I mean, I'm sure they're studying that right now, right? And is that something that has happened? I'm sure it's happened in years past. And why does a bear do that? And why don't they hibernate? And well, they don't. Grizzly bears don't. They're not true hibernators, I don't think. It would be nice to have an expert to correct me if I'm wrong. But they'll come out of the den and then go back um, throughout the winter. So it's it's not uncommon to have a sighting. And then they'll go sleep for a while. They're definitely not in the, the same hyperphagic feeding patterns that they are in the fall. But they they will come out from time to time. I have heard that before. When I was filming eagles in Haines, it was December and there were still bears. I think as long as there's food, there's they're going to yeah. stay out, right? And there was plenty of salmon still at that point in December in Haines. So we never saw them. They turned. They were very nocturnal. So there would be fresh tracks every day when you went, went down to film eagles, but you never saw the bears, but you definitely knew they were there just because of the tracks. Huh, so that's a pretty cool uh, way to do it if you're – if you're in a coach, you can see quite a bit. And like I said, I've done it once. I don't, I didn't, you know, I had one of those days where we got a few things, but we didn't get that stellar stuff like you're talking about. But that's just what happens, right? You just never know. And you just, your best bet would be to fill a coach with what, eight people and do three or four days for your best upper, best chances, I would guess, right? Yeah. And I think you guys have talked about it on the podcast. Matter of fact, I know you have. Um, but I've learned that over the years is like, if I come to the park, it's best if I can have three, four or five days because more than likely two or three of those days are going to be kind of slow. And you might, you know, you're lucky if you get one or two really good days in a four or five day period. So I've found that to be fairly true. And I've just gotten lucky before and had a couple of really good days in a row where I just hit it right. But you know, t- like on this trip, I'm two days in and I had one day that was pretty good. And then today's been super slow. So I mean, I didn't even snap a shutter today. So, you know, it's just the way it goes. But What's the weather like up there right now? Uh, right now, it's it's beautiful. Clear blue skies. Um, it's kind of cold. It's uh, probably, you know, at night it's getting down to close to zero. And then in the daytime, it's getting to... Uh, you know, low 30s. So, and there's supposed to be a storm coming in tomorrow afternoon is what I understand. What do you prefer? I mean, I'm the kind of guy I'd like to have that storm. I want the moody. I want the storm. I want the clouds. I'm not a huge fan of, you know, 
blue skies during the day at all. But what what is that something that excites you to know that a storm's coming in, or would you prefer to just keep what you what you got going on now? Yeah, I like a little bit of both. I mean, if I can have a couple of really good days with some good light in the morning and evening, um, then that's that's nice because you get that real good golden hour light in the morning and evenings. And then the stormy days are off. You know, the, the ideal situation in my mind is you have that nice, beautiful sunrise. Uh, you get an hour or two in the morning of good shooting, and then the clouds roll in, and you got some, you know, some distilled light throughout the day, filtered light for you. And then in the evening, it clears up again. You got your golden hour back, right? That'd be ideal. But you know, if the, but I do enjoy shooting in the storms and the snow too. Um, and I did have that on my uh, trip last time where it was uh, coming down pretty good and had some pretty neat opportunities with some again bison in the snow, whiteout conditions. You know, and that's just that's can be a fun shot when a bison's running through the snow with a deep powder, and it's and it's snowing, and you got just that dark contrasty critter with the white all white out around it. It's it can be pretty, pretty awesome situation. Right. What are the chances of seeing wolves? Like, so when you go on the coach and you're going into the park, which is like this week. This week you're not able to. You guys are in a vehicle. You don't have a snow coach you're pretty much limited to that northern road, right? But when you're on a coach, you're going deep into the park. And so there's several wolf packs where you might be able to see, you know, one or two of different packs or, you know, or nothing. You never know. Are there, and there traditionally or historically, there used to be a pack that was in Lamar Valley all the time. Is that still the case up there now? Or is it, has that changed a lot? Yeah, it's it's still a lot like that. It's, I think there used to be a pack called the Lamar Pack, and I don't know if it's still the Lamar Pack. I think that pack was split up and made and created two other packs. Um, I think the pack that they've I'm I'm not, I'm not even going to try to say the names of the pack. There is a pack right now that's in the Lamar Valley. Um, it's hanging out up on a. It's called Specimen Ridge, and there's I think they've got a, a carcass up there that they've been hanging on. And you know you'll you'll you can't miss it if you come to the park and you're driving through Lamar. And this doesn't matter what time of year it is. It could be through Hayden, Madison, Lamar. If you'll see the folks that are looking for wolves, and generally there's a, quite a few folks up here that have um, radios that they can track and identify where wolves are hanging out, and they will set up in a lot of the pullouts with spotting scopes and things of that nature. And obviously a lot of people come to this park to see the wolves, and when they do that, they're, if you just pull over, they're more than happy to show you if they if they're looking at wolves. So I, I know, you know, I've done that before with my family and, you know, they've all had an opportunity to see wolves even at long distance. Um, so your chances of seeing wolves at a long range are actually pretty good. Um, but seeing them up close for good photos is, a, you know, is a whole other story. Yeah, that's a, and then Ron or Jason, you might even just the amount of time you guys spend in Yellowstone, just you got a lot more information than I have. It seems to me that traditionally or historically, or I guess that's a dumb way to say it, but the mating season for wolves is what, late February, like right now, right? So February into March, and then a lot of times you'll get interaction amongst packs, right? Because they'll, you know, you could have a a individual leave a pack and go try to intermingle with another. That's what I saw when I was there. We had packs on each side of the road, and you would have a single wolf cross leave this pack and go over to that other pack. And then you're like, is this a fight or is this a dominance thing? Or is this a one individual that's just splitting off? And we never saw anything. We saw a lot of howling. We saw a lot of, it was cool. Cause we had a lot of wolves 
close to the road, it was hard to shoot because they're just like, they're on a mission. They're not stopping to pose for pictures, but yeah. Um, this is the time to, for that. And how far, how long into March does that go? Ooh, Ron, you, I'll let you answer that one. Yeah. It's probably mid to mid, mid February to mid March, but they'll, I mean, sometimes the young males will get kicked off. It doesn't really matter what time of year necessarily. And it's kind of luck of the draw, whether or not they get allowed into another pack. A lot of the times the other pack will just kill them. Right. Um, because they don't want another mouth to feed or don't want competition. So it just kind of depends, you know, the breeding behavior. I think February is the prime, the prime month. Um, March you're starting to see, and you know, it's time different ungulates. The birth of their young is timed with uh, the greening up of the grass. So when the forbs are, are popping now, all of a sudden the antelope and elk and, and deer are having fawns. But the, the wolves are timed a little bit different. They're timed start to, you know, be out of the den so they can be actively hunting and not just watching young ones when those fawns and calves and, you know, bison calves are all hitting the ground. So they're, they're earlier than the ungulates. So they'll have, and I don't know what the gestation period of a wolf is. I'm, I would guess about, you know, 60 days. So if you're looking, you know, February, then you'd be looking at April for the birth. And then by June, they're four weeks old and they're ready to have a little bit of solid meat, not just mother's milk. So it's uh, nature's got a wonderful way of timing itself out. What's the wolf or not the, the elk herd like up there the, these days? Um, so I don't know exact numbers, but I know they're recovering, so to speak, I think. I've heard numbers from around 8,000 to 10,000 or so. Yeah. So it's not the heyday, right, when there was, I can't remember how many, 17 to 20,000 or something, yeah. 17,000. Um, but, you know, for the for the wolf pack to be here and to basically have been maintained and fairly stable over the last five, six years is what I've heard, around 100 wolves total in the park. Um, and the elk herd to be recovering, you know, that's kind of an interesting data point, right? So Found something close to homeostasis. Yeah. Yep. So, are you able to see elk every day too, and in, in, on your travels? Yes, definitely. You you're gonna see elk. I mean, there's there's two things I'll promise you. If you I'll guarantee you, when you come to Yellowstone, you're gonna see bison, and you're gonna see elk. <laughs> have you seen? Are a lot of the bulls have they lost their antlers, or are they still carrying them around? I uh, know they're still all packing their antlers. They'll probably start you know losing them here pretty quick. Um, but there's most all the ones I've seen are still packed, and then there there's usually you know some wintering bulls that are just kind of hanging out by themselves, the bigger ones, and there's you know some good opportunities for some wintering you know winter bull elk. Um, if you look at my account on my Instagram, that's the any of the wintering bull elk you see on there. Most of them were taken in Yellowstone. So when I was there, when I was telling you about when we were there and there were wolves on each side of the highway and they were. Uh, interacting back and forth we saw a lot of elk but at that time it was kind of when those elk were on their heels they're just they were exhibiting different behavior when you went to the park and there was 17,000 20,000 elk every valley bottom was just chock full of elk right so they were just everywhere and the yeah. wolves had a pretty easy time of of getting you know preying on those those elk especially in deep snow when I went 
several years later, it was amazing to see. You would see a two or three big bull elk way up on a high mountain ridge where you're like, man, I don't even know how this dude's going to survive up there. They're surviving because they're eating on grass where it's been windblown and they got something to eat. But can you imagine the wind and the temperature and just all the nature, what just all the different things nature's throwing at them and they're, they're surviving in it. But that's probably just a way to survive from the wolves as well. Right. And it's just, uh, it was, it was one of those interesting things to me. I don't know if it's interesting to anybody else, but just seeing how they were able to adapt, move up, live way up on the ridges. And we actually saw wolves interact with them where you, and this is all with spot and scopes. I mean, this is nothing that you can photograph, but it's just super cool to watch, right? Where you'd have two or three bulls and five or six wolves. And those wolves would just test them. You know, they would just see if anybody's hurt or if anybody's moving slow or, and they'd mess around for 30 minutes, and finally those wolves would just be like, okay, we're out of here. This this is probably not worth worth the fight to try to, to bring down a, a bull. But, you know, the bulls tend to be the ones that are preyed on more because after the rut, they're worn out. And uh, I know yep. we hiked in. So is it Slough Creek? Yep. Is that what it is? It's Slough Creek. Slough Creek? Mm-hmm. Yep. One time we hiked from – we were doing a little video project, so – we decided we were going to camp up in there. And so we snowshoed in from, we parked at Slough Creek and we went down that road and then we went up and over a ridge and a ranger had told us about a cabin, a ranger cabin back there. We couldn't stay in it, but that's where we decided to camp. And all along the way, there's these bison trails like you were talking about earlier, Jason. When when they create a trail, those bison tend to stay on that trail and that's what they, they all walk those trails to get from point to point to wherever they're doing their feeding and those are the trails we would travel too, right? Because it's just a lot easier to walk. But we would see, we probably saw four or five, I can't remember exactly, dead bull elk along the way. And I think it's just those, those, those bulls that are just so worn out after the rut. There's not a lot of stuff to eat during the winter, so they just can't regain their composure or regain their strength until you know, the spring rolls around. If, if luck's with them, they're going to survive. But if not, they can be pretty easy pickings for those wolves. Yeah. They, they, um, they like the bull elk for whatever reason, are one of their favorites and they target them. And what they like to do is get them in deep snow. And then they basically just run them to death. Cause like you said, they're worn down. They're having a hard time. They're recovering. You know, I think it's been talked about before, but they can lose like 25 to 30% of their, their body mass and that, and it starts even getting, if their fat reserves are gone, they actually can start getting into their muscle mass as well. So they're super vulnerable. And, um, those wolves will just, you know, get them in the snow and they will just run them to death until they can't fight back anymore. So, well, it sounds like a pretty cool trip. I don't know how much more there is to talk about. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that's just, you find interesting or good points to share with our, our, uh, listeners? Well, so just to your point, you know, one of the cool things is I've been coming here now in the winter for all oh, five years or so, I guess, pretty consistent. And it's, it is interesting to see those behaviors and you see them change over time. And I think that's part of the reason the elk herd's recovering is because they've learned to live with the wolves better. Um, and they've learned like now in the past, like you said, Mike, you'd never see um, elk down close. You know, they were, if you saw them, they were way up far away, way up high on a ridge. And now what I think they've learned is that the wolves don't like to be down by the roads as much because of the people. So now you've got these bull elk that a lot of them like to winter right by the road. And I think part of that just is just me, just is just my observation. But I, 
I have the opinion that I think that's part of it is that they they know that the wolves aren't more you know as likely to come down close to the roads and so they can be a little bit more comfortable and uh, less likely to be run into the deep snow you know so just an just an interesting observation but that's a cool thing about all, all of this is every time you go out you're kind of building that mental database of activity and and behaviors and you know what was the conditions like you know was it snowing was it not how much snow was there you know just all those things what time of year was it and over time you start to really start to understand um you know the the animals and their behaviors and maybe why they're doing some of the things they're doing and that so that's a that's a really um big side benefit of this if you will in my opinion um it's just learning and gaining that understanding of all these animals and their behaviors but yeah, and, and if you do it long enough, you get to see them change, like like you just referenced. So it's it's pretty yeah. interesting. And like you said, it's none of us are – well, I mean, I have a degree in biology, but I haven't used it in lots of years, right? But I do have that that desire to learn and that desire to pay attention, and you, you just kind of do make those mental notes. And year to year, you just see how it changes or how it evolves, and it's it's really interesting. And I think that's a lot of the reason yeah. we all get in this, right? Just because of that that stuff. Yeah. I wanted you to talk about your latest cover. You, I oh, actually yeah. <laughs> it was just recently on Instagram. I saw it. It's a cool way to present it, too, where you put the picture, and then you swipe. What is it? You swipe whatever one right or left. I don't know. Right, left, however. <laughs> And then boom, there's the cover of the exact shot. That's pretty cool. Talk talk about that shot a little bit. Well, yeah. First of all, just super, honestly, super humbled and honored to even be considered again. Um, that first one I got last year is the same publication, North American Elk. Um, you know, that's a pretty. It's a pretty awesome magazine. It's actually a newsstand um, type magazine. It's not a subscription type magazine. Um, that's what I would consider to be my first legitimate cover of any kind of a newsstand type publication. So last year I was pretty pumped about that. That was a, a really big accomplishment for me. And then to, to have that opportunity and then to be given that opportunity again to submit images, uh, you know, this year, and then to have, you know, another one of my images chosen was just, it blew me away. A lot of the guys that I, that I shoot with, you know, tend to focus on the biggest bull. And I really think this is, an opportunity where, you know, the biggest bull last year was the one that made the cover that I photographed. And this year, the same bull was there, but I didn't spend a lot of time with that bull. I really focused on trying to get some variation and find some different elk. And that really paid off for me in spades, obviously, this year, you know, going out and finding some other elk that weren't, that the photographers weren't focusing on near as much really helped me, um, you know, find a different animal and find a different situation where I could you know, submit something that the editor thought was worthy. So, well, Hey, just before we go forward, um, you're, I don't know if your heater's coming on in your room. I just want people to know oh. that, that don't worry about it. It's totally, okay. you can totally hear. I just wanted that when people hear that, it's just know that other, if the heater wasn't running, Jason might wake up as an icicle. So <laughs> up, where he, up where he's at, we get this question a lot. People want to know, how do you put together a submission for that? And I don't want to know exactly what you did. What's your thought yeah. process? What are you, how are you choosing images and how many did you send off? And were you like, oh, I'm just going to send off these two? Or did, did yeah. you say, I'm going to send <laughs> off 30? Or Just kind of give us a little idea of how you decided to put a submission together. Yeah, well, first of all, the editor contacted me and he said, all right, Jason, 
can you top last year? And I, <laughs> I responded back to him and said, well, I don't know about that, but you know, I've got a few images that I, that I really thought turned out pretty good. So I can send you a few. So obviously I'm really trying to only send them my very best. So I think I sent them five or six images that I thought were potential, um, potentially usable. And I knew that they didn't want the same bowl twice. So I avoided that. And I just focused on the other, you know, two or three bowls that I had that I thought were, you know, still something that they would be, they'd be willing to consider. And then I just submitted them to them and let them play with them and let them, you know, submit them the full size image and let them mock it up and see what might work for them. You know, just wait to hear back and they let me know that they chose it again. And I actually didn't know for sure. And I saw it announced on Instagram by the, by the editor. I was like, oh, wow, they weren't joking. <laughs> that's really cool. So, yeah, I finally got my hands on a copy, and that's why I posted that post, because it was able to get a hold of one. And it's, it's just it's a neat experience, right? It's a neat opportunity to be able to see your, your image in print, um, especially, you know, on a cover of a magazine like that. So kind of a kind of a big deal to me. But When you were submitting those images, what were you looking for? Were you Was it light? Was it attitude? Was it? Comp. I mean, it's obviously all of these things, right? But what did you key on on the most? I mean, I, I've done this a million times too. And you're like, what yeah. is going to make an editor say, you know, I'm definitely going to try this one out. Yeah. Well, what was your thought process? Yeah. So a lot of it for me, you know, because that first image was all about light. Um, and I mean, light's a big deal in any, any image. I understand that. But to me, that was just such a unique light situation. And I knew that that caught his attention, obviously. So I was looking for an image that was similar maybe with the lighting, but I didn't want it to be the exact same thing where it's, you know, a full dark background and this bull's head coming out of the shadow, so to speak. So I was really looking for, and I think I, the five or six images, I think almost all of them had kind of that same kind of a feel to them where it was a little bit darker in the back, um, but not fully dark. And then just really the next thing I'm looking for is that behavior. Like the one that made the cover has a really neat the bull was actually getting frustrated with his cows and they weren't listening to him. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And the settings were right, you know, all that good stuff. It all came together. He put his head back and tilted it sideways and was kind of had his hissing kind of going. Um, and it was just a neat, neat pose. And just, you know, to be able to capture it was, you know, I got, I, there was a lot of luck involved for sure. <laughs> yeah. But that, I think you, know you create your own luck, right? You just got to be there mm -hmm. and, and that's how it goes. What, uh, just for our audience, since I think we're all a bunch of photo nerds, yeah. what camera, what lens, do you remember your settings? Do you, do you have any of that kind of stuff? I, you may not know exactly, yeah, no. but you probably can. Yeah, rough idea for sure. I, I was shooting, I think I shot that with my D810 and I had the two to 500 on it and settings. It was, it was kind of, uh, like late morning. It was probably around 10 30, 11 o'clock. So the light was starting to get a little bit harsh. And as, and as you can see, he was in the trees. So, you know, shadows are always a concern when you're in that kind of a situation. And sometimes shadows can be really good and sometimes they can just, you know, really mess you up. So I was kind of looking for that situation where he would hit a spot where the light was good enough that it would light up, you know, his face and that lighted him up properly. And he was coming through the trees and I could see it unfolding, you know, him getting after his cows. So I ran around and got in position. And I think that's where understanding behavior really comes into play and helps a wildlife photographer out. But seeing that unfold and then just getting myself in the right position. And then when he came through there, I think my settings were, I want to say I was shooting at five, six aperture. My, I think my uh, shutter speed was like one sixteen hundredth. And I think my, um, 
my ISO was around 200, I think. Um, and you know, just got fortunate because I think he, he was actually pretty close. I want to say I might have shot that at like 300 millimeters. Um, and to, I, I got lucky. I think that everything was in was in focus because when you're shooting, you know, at those closer distances, that you, I should have probably been at like f8, you know, for example, um, because the, well, understand how that works, you know, with your your aperture and it gets narrow. Your focus window gets narrower, especially as the animal gets closer to you. Um, so anyways, that I, I was really worried about that when I looked at it on the computer, I was, whew, you know, <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> How much do you pay attention to that when you're, well, when you're shooting? Or, think of all that stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. That was kind of my question yeah. is cause I, I said it and you know, if it's a, if it's an hour, I'm probably not paying much attention. I'm just shooting. But as the light starts to change, you need to kind of keep that in mind that, oh, hey, it's either getting brighter or it's getting darker. Not doing as nowadays with these new cameras and you cheat so much on this ISO that I'm like, oh, it's fine. Or, oh, I got image stabilization. <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about it. But you can't do that. I have to think a lot about, you know what? Don't just rely on this technology. Just keep paying attention to what you're doing because you, yeah. you could miss that shot very easily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we, and I think the, we had the, uh, podcast a while back with Harlan Cooper was on myself and Harlan were on and, you know, he talked about that and I, I'm telling you, he is one of my biggest mentors and he, you know, we'll be out shooting and he'll just look over at me and say, what, what aperture are you shooting at? You know? <laughs> and so, and it's just, that's his little way of reminding me, you know, are you thinking about this stuff? You know, what are you, what's going on? What are you thinking about? And so, you know, I try to do that, but when you're in the heat of the moment, you know, it's it's not easy to be thinking, oh, here he comes, he's getting closer. Oh crap, I better crank crank up my aperture in my eyes. So, you know, I mean, you just it's hard to think of those things. So, but the more you do it, the better you get at it, obviously. But yeah, yeah, you're right. But you can still screw. I'm, I've screwed it up so many times, and I'm just it's so obvious, and you know what you're supposed to be doing, but you get caught up in the heat of the moment, or you're like, oh, I'm gonna get this. I'm going to get it. And then you get it, but then it's blurry or it's, you know, yep. you just didn't have fast enough shutter speed or whatever the case is. It's pretty yep. interesting. <laughs> huh? I was, I want to go back a little bit to the process when you're making these submissions. I mean, you're, you were submitting for a cover, but I know that a lot of publishers on, once you get on their radar, you get on an email list, they'll put out a list of images that they want for mm-hmm. one story or another. I want to encourage people shoot the things that you don't think you want to shoot because that's what a lot of these stories that's what they're looking for. You know, they want the the pack string of people. They want human interaction. They want wildlife on the roads because they can talk about, you know, how they're going to mitigate that issue. Uh, they can use that in that kind of story. They want wildlife in the front yard, wildlife in the backyard, wildlife in the garden. You know, all of those things are part of the story. So don't just go during the rut and think you're going to get everything you need for the remainder of the year. Make sure you're telling or painting the whole picture with your images. No, that's a really good point, Ron. And, and you know, I think you get probably some of the same mailing lists I do. And it's amazing to me some of the specific things they ask for sometimes. And, you Super know, it's specific. Just, yeah, it's, because it goes right. along with the story. You're, I mean, you're... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it makes sense when you think about it, but how many times do you not shoot the calf that's playing around in the field? Or how many times do you not shoot the cow that's, you know, they're the two cows that are having some interesting behavior? 
You know, I mean, just don't be looking for all of it. Don't get so tunnel finished that you're only shooting the big bulls with, you know, when they're bugling. You know, you really try to capture the whole story. Like you said, that's, that's really good advice. But I think uh, that's like the perfect pro tip right there because it is, I can't tell you how many times we'll get, we're on a bunch of these lists, right? And you get excited when you see, you know, this, this uh, person that sent you an email is always looking for images and you'll, they'll have these descriptions and they're like so detailed. Can you have a flower <laughs> on the left hoof with a, you know, <laughs> Can a blade of grass and stick in their stuck in their tooth and uh, you know it's like and the reason they can do that is because there's so many of us out there shooting that you know what i can be as specific as i want to be because you know hundreds of thousands of shots are being shot every year so let's just try to get exactly what we want if they don't get that then they're going to get something that's pretty darn close because somebody was thinking so i think that is a yeah. really really good point and i it's super easy to get torn away from you know, everybody wants that cover shot, and that's always that really pretty portrait, and it's a really pretty bull, and or it's a really pretty bird, or it's a really, you know, whatever. But there's so much to shoot all the time that you just got to open your mind. And, and I fall into that trap all the time. And I think about it after. You know, I'll get back, exactly. and I'll look at the images, I'll be, and I'll think back to the whole situation, and, and I'll think, man... It would have been really great if I shot that, you know, the coyote walking across the road or that bird, you know, flying and landing on a, a telephone pole or whatever the situation is. And I just don't do it. But I've gotten better, but I still am not good at it. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember uh, we were shooting it in Colorado a couple falls ago, photographing elk and a couple cows were chewing on. I don't know if it was a humerus or a femur, but they were they were chewing on elk bones. And they get, you know, calcium deprived, so they'll they'll chew those bones down. And I remember a story when I was a kid talking about that and the images that people got. And I thought, that's crazy. I've never seen that happen. Does it happen any more than when this, you know, the day this guy took the pictures? And then when it happened right in front of us, all I could think was, I got to get that because somebody's going to want that again someday because that's an old story. But. I'm blazing away. The bull's laying down in the trees, and I'm blazing away on a cow chewing on an elk femur. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with your market, too. If you're if you're just shooting for fun, then shoot whatever, right? Just have fun. Right. If you're shooting to try to build a business and make some money, and, you're, and your path is going to be editorial magazines, then what we're talking about totally is what you got to do. If you're going for fine art, Maybe not so much. I mean, you might as well shoot it because you might get that secondary sale through an editorial use, but mm -hmm. chances are a lot of these images are not going to work for some sort of fine art thing. But just kind of pay attention to what your what your market is. And But if it's editorial, this, this is one of those pro tips that uh, it's worth its weight in gold. Because yeah. you could sell 10 of those images before you ever sell a, co a cover image, right? For sure. Yeah, yeah, and I'll just I'll just add real quick because that's a that is a great point, but it's also understanding you know getting to know your editors and what they're looking for, and every editor looks for different things, right? I mean, it's not some of them like that really tight in your face crop, or and some of them like a little bit you know broader, wider crop with a little bit more, you know, landscape in it or you know whatever whatever it might be. But getting to understand the editor and what they're looking for is a big deal too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think your style, Jason, your your style with light 
is it just jumps. You just see it. You look on any of your images or your Instagram feed or wherever somebody's going to view your images. You just you can tell that you love playing with light, and you wait, and you're very you have a a, a way about just waiting for that right moment. You know, or putting yourself in the position too, right? Spot. Yep. Yeah, you think about it. It's like, oh, this light might just hit right here just perfectly. And if I get an elk or so, I think yeah, well, that, thank you. <laughs> that plays into that too, where these editors start to notice that. That's the cool thing about Instagram is yeah. you can be exposed to some of these people that you may not ever, ever meet or not even know how to contact. How do you contact the editor of XYZ Magazine? You just never know. Well, on this one, this one was one of those where I owe, you know, it was a gentleman named Sam Soholt that he's actually the one that introduced my work to this editor, you know, and so I can't thank him enough for, you know, introducing me other, and it was through Instagram at tier point. So, you know, there are benefits to Instagram. I mean, we've talked, I've talked about it before, you know, followers don't necessarily equal print sales and all that good stuff, but what it does do is it gets you that exposure and, you know, allows other people to see your work and, and to potentially share it with other people too. So. So there is benefits to it, but I was doing that too. I mean, that shot, that one shot was like, I was showing all my buddies. I'm like, Hey, you got to check this shot out because it's such <laughs> a cool shot and it's so easy to share. It's like, Hey, you just forward that shot to, and everybody was just astounded with it. It was just, it was perfect. What you caught, what you captured mm -hmm. and Harlan got it too. You guys both got it, but you were mm -hmm. able to capitalize on it, which was cool. Yeah. Actually, I didn't know you guys were yeah, friends. I you. thought Harlan's. One of the two of you stole it from the other one. <laughs> well, if we're going to go there, then I'm going to say I stole it from him. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. Well, I didn't have anything else as far as uh, photo stuff, but we do have some pro tips to do, right? I believe so, yeah. I mean, what? Uh, who wants to start out? Do you want to start, Ron? Sure. You know, it's been editing season, so every time I sit down at the computer, I think of all these things. And uh, one of the things that I want to encourage people to do is to play with that range masking or luminosity masking in Lightroom. It is a huge tool for a wildlife photographer. And I will tell you, one of the ways that you can use it is you go, you can select either a luminance or a color. So let's say you have, you know, a bird against some, some green trees or an evergreen you know, and, and it's wintertime here, so we'll say a blue jay against some evergreen trees. One of the ways that you can use this masking tool is to select just for the color, not necessarily the, the luminance or the, the quality of light, but the color. So you go in, you select your greens, and you, you paint over the whole image, but you only select the greens, so that's all you're affecting. So let's say you shot this thing at F8. You select the greens, you go in, you soften just the greens. So you've got this tack sharp image, but this range masking allows you to cheat the aperture a little bit. Your, your blue jay is still tack sharp, but you can make the background look like you shot it at F2.8 instead of F8. So you've got, you go from everything in focus to your nice soft background, makes your subject pop. And that's one way that, you know, a landscape photographer is not gonna use it that way. They're going to use it to cheat the light a little bit, potentially. But for a wildlife photographer, it's a great tool as well. And so I would, en I would encourage you guys to look up some YouTube videos. I've actually recorded a YouTube video about this uh, very subject or recorded a, 
like a screenshot video, and we hope to have that out on YouTube. I didn't record a YouTube video. Sorry, I misspoke. <laughs> we hope to have it out just, you know, to kind of help people understand how to use these different tools that are in your Adobe suite that you might not use right now. Well, let's back up one more thing. So you, you're painting over the image. You've selected the green. So you basically are saying you've got this bird, a blue jay. Yep. And then everything behind it is green and it's because it's evergreens or something, right? Right. The whole image is in focus. Shot this thing at F8. Yeah. So you're selecting the green. You're selecting Just, the luminosity tool first. You, is that you right? Paint over the whole image. And then you go down to the bottom of your brush menu. It gives you range masking option. So you just turn the range mask on or the range selection on. And then you can select either luminosity or color. And in this particular instance, you're going to select color. So when you select those greens, now you just go in and instead of taking the sharpness or the clarity up, you drop it, take it to the left instead of the right. And now you've just softened all those greens. So it looks like you shot it at a much shallower depth of field. Does it look good? Does it look real or does it, it look It looks fake? awesome. Really? Yep. I'll post a, yeah. And if you guys go to the show notes, I'm going to post a, I'll post a before and after that I did this with, with the, uh, a dusky grouse and you'll see, I mean, it's, it's subtle, but it makes a huge difference in your image. So that's when you are looking at it on the screen. Have you done some tests where you take that image and you print it just to make sure that that, that transition carries through? Yep. Printed the dusky and man, it is world the difference between the two prints. Huh? And I haven't had any, you know, there's not been anything that makes it look you know, plasticky or, or cartoony with the background. It, it looks totally natural. Just, just looks like you shot it at a shallower depth of field. How can you do all this stuff? How can you know all this camera stuff, then know all this computer stuff and then know, have all the time to, I mean, it's like, I'm not saying you as in you, but I'm just saying any photographer, <laughs> there's just so much out there to try to wrap your brain around to try to figure out, Oh, Hey, I shot it like this, but I can modify it. And, you know, not, you know, it's not like you're putting extra birds in the shot. You're just, right. you're creating a look that. Of the, of the true shot. Yeah. I'm not even, right. it's not a composite at all. Right. Right. It's, it's the true shot. You're just kind of, you're changing the game with the tools that are available to you. And I think to answer your question, I, I think, you know, one person knows a lot about one thing. Another person knows a lot about another thing. We've just got to be masters of capturing everybody's wisdom or listening to this podcast to get all these pro tips right i i honestly i'm sure there have been but i honestly haven't seen many people using that tool like that there are many different uses for it but i haven't seen too many people using it for that but i just tried it one day and holy smokes it makes a world of difference but that's really going to work if you have that solid green, right? You know, if you had a multicolored background, it may not work yeah. as well, right? If you had a multicolored background, it's going to be a little bit tougher. Then, you know, you might, let's just say you've got a dark subject and a, a blown out background or a lighter background. Then you just go and instead of selecting for color, you'd select for your luminance. And then you just, I want to select everything that's on the bright end, which is to the, to the right. It's the same as your histogram. So move both, move that range all the way to the right. There's two arrows 
in the bar and you want to move those arrows close together but on the right side and then you're only going to be impacting those highlights and you can see what your range is affecting that's a good pro tip for and jason you can weigh in on this because i think you have that two to six hundred sony right i do yeah so i know the biggest complaint about that lens is when you're shooting at 600 and you're at 6.3 you're not getting that separation quite like we all like if you can shoot at 2.8 or 4 or, you know even 5.6 you, you just get in a little bit more detail than we're and I see it a lot on Instagram and you know you, you can't it's totally understandable people aren't going to go out and spend $12,000 on a 400 2.8 or a Twelve thousand dollars and a six hundred f four. I mean, those are expensive lenses. If you can pick up a two to six for whatever two thousand dollars, that's what I'm going to do. You know, just to save a little money. But that process, as you're talking about, is a really good way to capture your image, but then make that slight modification. And I, you know, back in the day, I hate saying back in the day. It makes me feel really old, but. <laughs> You know, you couldn't do any of that kind of stuff and you had to get it in camera. And I think there's so many purists out there. It's like, ah, oh, it's just, if it's not in the camera, it's not a good shot. But I don't, these days, I mean, anything goes. I, I don't think, I don't well, think I it think... degrades anything. I think you're still creating, it's still your image. You're still doing, you know, and you just went from one tool, which is your camera to another tool, which is your computer to output something that's very real. I mean, I still have a problem with somebody you know, when they composite a shot and then I guess I don't even have a problem with it. If you tell me it's composited, I'm all good. But if you try yeah. to pass it off as though, no, that's exactly what I shot. I shot at this Bigfoot walking through uh, a forest <laughs> with a grizzly bear and a wolf hopping over the log. Yeah. I mean, that's not a real deal, but it could have, you know, you could certainly, well, you can't make that because of Bigfoot, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's just one of those deals where I yeah. think these days that is just, it's, it's fine. It's, it's, Get the shot, make the shot, make what you want. And half of it's done in the field and half of it's done, or maybe not yeah. half, two, two thirds is done in the field and a third is done. Yeah. If you don't have a good image to start with, you're not going to make it a good image. Even with, you know, I've been playing with that Topaz suite that Mark was all scared of because now they can bring the images back into focus through artificial intelligence. And it just, you know, it samples the, the lines and, tries to delineate the the lines but you're not going to make a an image tack sharp in focus with that series of of software it's not going to happen if you don't get it right in the field you just didn't get it right yeah and the other thing to add to that would be if you're not doing that and you're not learning these tricks and using these tricks your advantage i promise you other people are somebody is yep exactly. promise you so i think it's something i like i said i if you asked me this 10 years ago, I would have had a serious problem with it. If, but now I just think it's another tool. I think it's, why not? Yeah. You know, if, if you're just representing what you saw in the field, that's fine. Yeah. Well, my pro tip is really lame compared to that one. So <laughs> with that in mind, what do you got, Jason? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> um, you know, I'm actually going to play off of that one a little bit. And I'm actually this from my buddy, Kelly Elmer. Um, he's Kelly's wildlife on Instagram, by the way, but I really, I, so for everybody that doesn't know, I'm a Nikon shooter have been for, since I started shooting, which has been about six, seven years now. And I've just loved my Nikon gear. 
and I've just had this same itch that everybody else has about what's the big deal about Sony? What's going on with Sony? So as you guys know, I just recently, right before the deer rut started, I dropped, I don't know, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I dropped my D810 and my 2 to 500 on the concrete and it didn't fare well. Um, <laughs> pretty much blew up. So um, I was out without a handheld option, which is just, in my opinion, not acceptable. I had had money set aside for the Sony. Um, I'd been kind of him hawing if I was going to try it or not. And that's all I needed was that excuse to go ahead and make the jump. So I, I bought the 200 to 600, and I bought the A7R4. And I've been using it. Um, but I've had a couple of things that were really nagging at me, and one of them was a color issue. Uh, the Lightroom was not handling the colors from that Sony, from that new sensor, um, the way I was used to seeing colors coming off my Nikon sensor, and it was really, I mean, it was bad. I mean, the the orange, the the browns on a on a deer hide, for example, were coming out real orange, and if I adjusted the colors at all, it was just it was going way out of whack. If I saturated at all, it was just going through the roof orange. So. Anyways, I was really struggling with um, how to edit some of these photos and, and trying to understand how this all works. And maybe this is just not really a pro tip. This is just Jason needed to learn something. <laughs> but I I had didn't know this, and it really taught me a lot. And Kelly shared this with me, was that really the you know you really should be considering using the software that's created by the company for the so the Nikon software, the Sony software, or the Canon software. And the reason is, is they don't share their proprietary information with Lightroom and Adobe. Adobe does their best guess and, you know, gets files and takes a raw file and does what they can. But and that's and that. And I learned that's why you see a bunch of updates after a new body comes out is because they're trying to figure out, you know, they're trying to get it all right. So interestingly enough, I just seen an update from Lightroom you know, a week ago or so, and I noticed my colors were much better. But. To Kelly's point, he was told, and he went to the big camera show down in Las Vegas this week, and he sat in on a seminar where they actually showed them examples, and he took some photos and, and tried both, threw it into Lightroom, and then he got the Sony version, the capture, whatever it is, I can't remember the name of it, but he got that software, and he put them into both and looked at the differences, and he said it was night and day. He said it was just incredible how much different it was. So... So the, the bad part of that, right, is that Lightroom's great because it works for any kind of file type. Um, it works for any of the camera brands. Um, the hard thing is, is if you're a guy like me now who has Nikon and Sony, is that instead of Lightroom, you've got, you're have got you going to make the choice. You're going to use Nikon software, and then you've got to learn how to use that software. And then are you going to buy the Sony software? And then you got to learn how to use the Sony software. And they're set up very much like Lightroom is, so I think it's 10 bucks a month or something with an annual membership to use the Nikon software and or the Sony software. Oh. So there's some so there's some downsides to it, right? But and I think Lightroom for the most part gets it right after a while, but here at first it was really frustrating to me and I was almost getting ready to just <laughs> take that thing and sell it. But um you should talk, yeah, to, so. talk to Adam Rice. Yes. He had some of the same things and he's he's been with Sony for quite a while, but he's down in your area too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. So, um, Adam and Kate both have helped me a ton um, with. I actually ran into them on the island, and they were helping me get my settings right after I bought it. So, yeah, they're they're, they're real good people, and they they were really willing to help. Um, but at that point, I hadn't really understood the challenges with the color issue. But yeah, but yeah, that so, totally so, makes like, sense though. That is a good. It does. Yeah, it does, and I don't know if it's it. a pro tip, but <laughs> no, that's <laughs> but a serious I mean, pro tip. Know, 
what do you do with it, right? I mean, I don't know. You're going to go out and buy, you know. So for, so I guess if you're a Sony guy or gal, then maybe you should, instead of using Lightroom, maybe you should buy this Sony software, and then you know your images are going to be spot on with your colors and stuff, you know. But, so is that what you did is you bought or you paid the subscription? I didn't. I was gonna, actually going to just download the one-month trial and just play with it and see how different it was. And if it was really like – if it's really that different, then – that might be the route I need to go, right? I mean, it just, I want my images to be as, as good as they can be. And a lot of that has to do with these digital files. It has to do with post. So if the colors are that much better, you know, maybe that's what I'll do. And maybe we can talk about that at some other point in the future. But, you know, if they're that much better, then maybe it's worth it. Maybe you should be, you know, I'm not trying. I mean, I love Adobe Lightroom and Photoshop. That's what I use on everything. But, you know, if I if they can't get it right, then I'm going to use the best option for me. You know what I mean? Or it's one of those deals where I listen to another podcast and this guy's like, um, let's use Apple, for example. He's he's like, I'll never buy the first version of their watch or I'll never buy the first version of their phone. He's like, or I'll never update the latest software until it's on like version three or version four, because there's always these bugs. So what you're saying is. Give it six months. Adobe's going to yeah. figure it out. So don't be that guy that, or gal that goes out and buys that new camera that's right up, fresh off the, the assembly line. Wait six months or wait a year. Then pick up that camera. You're still going to have good, you know, it's, it's still going to be just as good then as it was when it came out. And then Lightroom is probably caught up by that point. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably about right. You know, six to eight months is probably a good time frame. Right. Huh. Man, I'm not even going to say my pro tip because it is so oh, no. lame compared to both of those. <laughs> You're on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Mine are always equipment just because I'm always constantly buying equipment. But, you know, I'm really glad you said that because I shot an assignment last week or two days ago. And I was looking at the footage, and I'm like, man, this stuff is not... I mean, we were shooting in really pretty light, and it was kind of orange, but it just seems too orange for what I was... And I'll bet it's... I was just looking at it through Apple, you know, I'm just hitting the space bar and looking at the files. So I wasn't taking it in, and I'm sure it can be fixed in color correction, but you're going to have to know what you're doing. You know, whoever's doing the post-production on that is going to have to know... I need to make that adjustment. But I'm glad you said that because I was thinking, man, that is awful orange. I mean, it still looked okay. It'll still work for what we did, but huh. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to talk about this water bottle. No. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I had was, uh, like you said earlier, Ron, it's kind of the edit season, not for Jason because he seems to be very prolific at all times of the year. <laughs> but... Um, I spend a lot of time, you know, in January and February tend to be that time where I'm cleaning up the house, right? I'm just cleaning up all these images. I'm trying to manage all this data and we're shooting terabytes of stuff for assignments. And, you know, then I got the wildlife stuff and then you're shooting red stuff. And I find myself just having stuff spread out. I'm, I'm pretty organized, but it still seems awful spread out as you go on through the year. Cause you're like, okay, I just got to get it in two places and then I'm good to go and I'll deal with this later. And this is my time to deal with it. The lame pro tip that I have is I've found these uh, eight terabyte hard drives through, actually I'm finding them at Costco, but I've seen them at Best Buy as well. It's 119 bucks. 
They're not going to be good for anything other than storing data. You don't want to edit off of them. You don't want to. You don't want to have it be like fast access memory, or you don't want to be editing pictures from them. But if you just want to archive your stuff and make it safe, and if you're following the rules and you're having a copy that's in the house and you're having a copy that's off-site in a safety deposit box or whatever, this is the ticket. I mean, they're pretty reliable. Well, they're really reliable. I have a bunch of them, and they just. It's just a ton of data, right? So you could probably, some people, you could take all of last, if you're just shooting stills, you could probably take all of last year and it'd fit on that one drive, you know? So for a hundred and whatever, you know, I think they're 170 bucks, but if you wait till they're on sale, they're like $119 for eight terabytes. They're not, uh, they're USB two or three, I think. So they're not the USB-C, you know, they're not fast. But that's okay. I'm just really just taking this data and I'm just, and I'll do it overnight. I'll move two terabytes overnight. And then I'll just do the, you know, it's just a real cost effective way of securing your data. And I find myself, it's like, you guys ever go out on a shoot and you download a card, then you don't format that card right away. And then you go back out in the field and you put this card in and you're like, did I download that? No, or did I, I not? Never download. ever have done that. <laughs> I do that all the time, and I even do it with my. So I have this little travel drive system where I have nothing but SSD drives when I'm in the field. So I'm just dumping data because I got to do it fast, and I just got to keep stuff going. But when I get back to the office, is where I put them on these bigger drives, and then I find myself not clearing these drives once I've dumped them to the other drives, and then I'll get back out on another assignment, and I'll think, did I, did I dump that? Or, you know, so I don't. So then I've found it where I've just, I'll just spend a day and I'll take every drive I got and I'll just dump them on that drive. And that way it's just like one of those extra little steps where you know it's there, you know, and then I make myself format these drives after I've got them dumped and I just know that, okay, now I'm starting fresh. It's just a ton of data for a, a low cost in it. There's nothing more important than having that data, right? None of those things, the pro tips that you guys had don't work if those, if that data is not there. So I guess it's really important to, from that perspective, but it's kind of lame compared to what you guys threw out there. Oh, except well, we'll for the little caveat you just threw on there that yeah. ours wouldn't be anything without yours. <laughs> well, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it is the base. <laughs> We'll apologize again for for being late with this podcast, but we told you last week that we we had a, a pretty big announcement that was coming. Again, we we shared that Mark was uh, moving on, trying to focus on where he makes his living, how he puts food on the table, and so the announcement this week is Jason has been a guest on the show, but this week we are welcoming Jason the shadow master Loftus to the podcast <laughs> as a host, a full-time host, <laughs> full-time host. One of the guys. <laughs> it's awesome. I'm super excited. <laughs> I, I, you have, you bring so much to the table and your perspective and I don't know many people that work as hard as you are right out there these days, you know, having a full-time job and making it go, making it go at this. So it's going to be fun to just throw ideas around and talk to different people. And your perspective is going to be awesome. Well, thank you, thank you guys. Really, seriously, it's a, it's an honor, and I'm I'm excited about the opportunity. Um, I've I've loved the podcast from day one. I really have, and uh, I get a lot out of it. So hopefully now I can 
maybe help some other folks get some things from the little bit of information that I've learned over the last few years. But I'm excited. Thank you. Well, I think it'll be cool, too, because, you know, when Mark and Ron and I started this thing, it was just we really didn't know what we're doing. You know, the, the whole concept was, is we all shoot the bull when we're done shooting out in the woods. Right. And you just have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Let's just turn that into a podcast. So it was just coming from our own heads as to what we thought people would want. But you being a listener for a couple of years, you, you can hopefully drive the, the direction on some of this stuff too, that, you know, you can bring up things that, Hey, I would really wish we, you, we can cover this now, you know, or, you know, hopefully something like that's going to come out of it with, with fresh, fresh ears and fresh thoughts. Yeah. And a fresh face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That too. Yeah. That too. Probably so should have dumped mine though. Oh. <laughs> so expect uh, Jason on every podcast where we've got some ideas floating around for some new stuff. We definitely would like to get more interaction with our audience to have them or have all you all give us some ideas or send us some questions or thoughts or how we can make this thing better or how we can better build a podcast that suits your needs better, better. Can I say better even more? Can I say it a few more times? You can say it more better, even more better. <laughs> and don't be afraid to send us your questions on video either. Um, if you send us some video questions, we may be putting something together for, for future use on uh, the YouTube channel. So if you'd like to be featured on that, send us your questions via video. Just a quick iPhone video is just fine. And we'll try to get them answered for you. If we don't know, I guarantee you we know somebody that does. I also want to do this thing where we do like a, we've talked about it a couple of times, but I would like to hear from our audience. Would, would a portfolio review be cool? You know, if, if we could pick one photographer every week and, you know, someone submits five images and, and we just go over those images. I mean, it's hard on an audio podcast because, you know, so many people are listening in an audio way, but if someone's listening, you know, driving to work or whatever, they could always get to work and look at those images that we were talking about. I don't know. I don't know if it's the right format, but I think it, it could be helpful. Even describing a picture and talking about things and, you know, you don't necessarily need to see it right away, but it would, it would be a good way to interact with the audience more, but let us know if that's something that you would want to hear about or see about. Or if you'd want to subject yourself to the, the audience as a whole, and I'm not saying that negatively, but some people are a little bit sensitive about that. And you've got to be able to take anything that's said with a grain of salt, but we're not out to bash anybody. I think it would, I think it would make for a fun show. And a good learning opportunity. When I first started, there was no internet, right? That's so funny to say. <laughs> um, but I was belonged to a little photo club, and we would go down every week, or I guess it was once a month, and they would have a little photo. I don't remember what they called it, but it was um, a critique or whatever, and you could submit three images. And yeah, you had to have a little bit of thick skin on a, you know, every now and then. But you also learned a ton. You know the. And then the praise was awesome too, right? So I don't know. I don't know if if we can help out that way or if it would be beneficial, but I'd, I'd like to give it a go if you guys think it would work. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jason, thanks so much for coming on as a, as a host. I think, like I said earlier, it's just going to be, it's going to be awesome. I love your perspective. I love your shooting. I love everything. So we should be able to, keep this train moving 
Yeah. No, I'm excited. Thank you, guys. I really do appreciate the opportunity. You bet. As always, thanks for listening to Wild and Exposed. Thanks for our hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, who, if you look over Mike's right shoulder, if you're watching on YouTube, is not there. (laughs) But she does a lot behind the scenes to keep this thing going. So thank you. Thank you all for listening. And uh, tune in next week for another episode of Wild and Exposed.